0: Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everybody. Before I introduce the guest for today, please take a moment and go to patreon.com slash indoctrination. Patreon.com slash indoctrination. It's the only way we're going to be able to keep the show on the air, and it is something that a lot of people rely on. I get emails every week talking about how this is a lifeline for people. I want to then, of course, be able to keep it going. So please partner with us to do that. Go to patreon.com slash indoctrination. We're not sponsored by any company. I pay for it out of pocket. It's a labor of love. I'm devoted to this issue. I'm devoted to the audience, to the people who listen, to the people who feel supported, to the people who feel emboldened to take steps to protect themselves because of it. So thank you very much. Now, today on the show, we have a guest who has quite a story. This is a very, very powerful story in a lot of ways. Sarah Rose is a very relatable person, someone who you could see hanging out with, someone who has been put through quite a head-spinning and abusive experience in every way. There's so much that we learn from her story, and I really, really look forward to having you hear it. She's a native of the San Francisco Bay Area. She received a BA in Judaic Studies from UC Berkeley, a certificate in Environmental Restoration and Watershed Management from Merritt College, and most recently, a master's degree in Rehabilitation Counseling from New Mexico Highlands University. She's worked as a massage therapist, professional organizer, and with kids with autism. She wrote a book about her cult experiences titled Escape Through the Window, which has been selling on Amazon for eight years. She was also featured in an episode in season two of the Identification Discoveries series Dangerous Persuasions. She was one of the ex-cultists featured in the Media Sources publication titled Religious Cults free thinking or fanatical published in 2014 here is sarah rose now with the story that she has decided to sit down and tell us no matter how hard it was to share it and i truly appreciate that I'm very excited to have Sarah Rose with me today. We have a lot to cover. And I know that you have been telling your story. It's not an easy thing to do, but being able to tell people what happened as a cautionary tale and also in the hope, I think, to illuminate things for people and also not that this was your intention, but I hope it has happened that you've received support along the way from comments, from people responding, which I think can be a very nice very nice thing. You can feel connected to the world outside. So I would love for you to take a moment and introduce yourself and a little bit about why you contacted the podcast to be able to share your story here. And then we'll start our conversation.
1: I'm Sarah Rose, and I've been out of my cult for over 22 years. And I wrote a book about my experiences. It's called "Escape Through the Window," which took me seventeen years to write. And I also was part of a investigation discovery series called "Dangerous Persuasions." And I had an article in a religious cult magazine. But I've been listening to Rachel's podcast quite a bit, and realized that this—I still feel like. I would like to get my story out to a wider audience, as you said, as a cautionary tale, because um, it's a somewhat different kind of story, I think, than I've heard on your podcast so far. And I think it's important. That's all I've
0: wanted since I came out is to keep other other people from going through what I went through. Mm. That's a wonderful pursuit. I have followed a bit about your story once I heard from you and you know, wanted to get more into seeing what happened to you. Of course, I, w- I want you to be able to tell it in your own words. But before we continue, I want to get back to what you just said, that the book took you 17 years to write. There are a lot of reasons for that. And so can you just take a moment to talk about the process, the 17-year process?
1: When I came out of the cult, I was in the battered woman's shelter and law enforcement gave me a computer They wanted me to write as much as I could while it was fresh or if it came to trial. And then when uh, Yanya Lalich came up to the battered Woman shelter for a weekend, my parents paid for that. I recorded all my sessions with her while it was fresh. And when I went to Wellspring, same thing with Ron Burks, who also been on your show, which was great to hear him. So there were times I would. I really wanted to tell the story. I did a timeline. It was really important to me to tell the truth. I don't even know why yet, but um, it just was really important. So I had a lot of notes and a lot of tapes. I had someone transcribe them. And there were times I couldn't look at it for a year and a half. Uh, it depended how traumatic it was. It was a, it's was it been very long healing experience that will, I'm sure will continue my whole life.
0: Right. I I wonder also if in that process of the 17 years there needed to be a way to describe what happened because you can tell your story and still not quite get <laughs> right you were in it you weren't doing it to yourself so you don't know about the methods that were used and why it worked and why it had that impact and so to understand that so you can put it into words is probably it's it's own challenge.
1: Yes, and I I didn't realize it, but I'm still learning, as I said, listening to your podcast. When I hear other speakers or hear your comments after the speaker, something will click and say, yes, exactly, exactly, that uh, it fits in. And in fact, it was just a couple of years ago where I came out of another piece of the programming that I didn't realize was still there. So there might be other ones. I thought it was magical that. My cult leader, Master David, found me over and over and over when I ran away. And a couple of years ago, through therapy, I realized, oh, all you had to do was ask people, a skinny white girl in a white dress, <laughs> and, um, you know, stood out.
0: It had never
1: occurred to me.
0: I just thought it was magic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you can think that you're beyond it. Then just as you said, suddenly there's this other piece that you realize has been hanging on that you haven't been necessarily aware of. And very often it is exactly as you're saying, that there is still this sense of the leader being omniscient in some way that they can find you. They know what you're doing. And, and yes, it is magical, which is still sort of putting them in this lofty position over you and having more power, which you see got embedded. And then when you find out the reason is actually very practical and human, it can reduce you know people in your eyes in a really nice way to normalize them so that you don't have to worry that they have this power over you. Did it feel freeing to you when you realized that he didn't have that magical power? Yes. And I was, I was shocked.
1: I can't say that I'm still a hundred percent free of him. I, I still have nightmares. Okay.
0: It's interesting. Yeah. it was freeing and it's still there. Okay. That's very open, very honest. I think a lot of people will relate to that. So then if it's okay with you, let's Sort of go through the chronology and see how this all began and what your entree was into it, and give people kind of a flavor for what your life was like before and when you got in all of that transitional time. In before I got in the cult, i have
1: been through a lot. I was doing with um, sexual abuse, childhood sexual abuse, and just coming out of a hard time. But I was doing really well. I had a lot of friends and was taking classes and working and. Um, Just having a good time. And then um, I had a good friend. One day he said, do you want to go out to the beach with me? I have this guy I've been working with. And I had never heard about this teacher or guru or whatever it was. And it just sounded fun, interesting, adventure. So um, we went out to the beach and we're on a bluff and looked down. And there was this man that all in white that kind of looked like Jesus, my idea of Jesus with a circle of disciples around him. And they were drumming and singing. And, you know, it was a, a beautiful scene. <laughs> and I thought, okay, I'll get closer and look into his eyes and see if he's some kind of kook. And as soon as I saw his eyes, these beautiful, genuine blue eyes, and heard his British accent and his lovely, gentle voice, I thought, oh, wow. And it just, from there, it felt Really good. And of course, I had doubts as the time went on. I left, I came back, I left. But um it was pretty captivating from the beginning.
0: We are able to be persuaded, and I think our defenses are lowered when there are things about a person that we like. Mm-hmm. And so if he had this lovely gentle voice, which betrays his you know, his personality internally, but he can come across in a way that feels good. And that probably felt different from what you were around before. If you had a history of abuse and his eyes and also the accent, it's such an interesting thing. And so I'm wondering then about if there was something in the way that he was sort of commanding the group that also made a difference. What did you see there with his, as you say, disciples around him?
1: The image he presented, he had injured his feet a lot through supposedly this big spiritual trial he had been through. He had to wear hiking boots to support them. He was very thin, very fragile looking. And he just had this dirty blue pup tent he was sitting outside of. It was just all so humble and um, just. Uh, The people sitting around him, there was a gentleness and it's upper class British accent and talked so
0: softly and so gently and so different from who he turned out to be, of course. And sometimes people also, when they go into an environment like that, they will watch the other people who are watching. They'll look at the looks on their faces. And if they're looking with adoration or they seem happy, that kind of connects with how you then feel like you can feel in this person's presence. Was that also happening for you?
1: Yes. I mean, I didn't feel like I was looking for anything, but it just, it felt good. And, 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 you know, as I look back, what he had us focus on was love in our hearts. I mean, it was, this was not a deep spiritual message, but, um, at the time it felt wonderful. <laughs> right.
0: Kind of like a Hallmark card, but still, <laughs> right, it felt deep. Okay, so tell me what happened from that moment forth. I went back with uh, my friend a couple of times to the beach, and then
1: uh, there was a time we went, and there was no one else there, and he was in his tent, and he invited me in inside the tent, and he had his shirt on backwards, and it was just, so. Well, wow, that makes sense. A spiritual master would not have time to figure out how to put his shirt on, right? It was this whole persona. And my friend got very jealous because he had been working with him for a while, doing computer, typing on the computer for him. He wasn't ever invited into the tent. And he ended up, I don't know what to call him, the master. At the time, it was master. Master challenged him a lot, you know, provoked his jealousy, and he stomped off never to return. And so I was happy.
0: I had him to myself. You know, I I think about the messages that are sent in subtle and sometimes not so subtle ways, but also the hierarchy that it could be that you're anointed in some way, or it could be that you're just invited into his tent. And then, you know, you're in, and that makes other people jealous because they've worked tirelessly and probably for free and they weren't invited in the tent. So he had seemed a pecking order. And so here he was with his shirt on backwards. In that moment, you were kind of wondering, and when you look back on on your experience, I'm sure there were a lot of moments like that where you were wondering, but you can kind of dismiss it in the moment if you're Mm -hmm. caught up. Mm -hmm. Okay. So continue.
1: So um, at some point, maybe about three weeks after I met him, I went out there One time alone, and I can't remember exactly what happened, but he asked me if he could come spend the night at my house. And I thought, sure, again, the, you know, the privileged, like I'm the one. And so we packed up his tent in my car and he came to my house and I put down a a mattress on the floor for him. And somehow that night he was suddenly in my bed and I was very confused because he was my master but it also felt really good. And, and right away, he he had two disciples who were with him before me, two male disciples. And they moved on to my deck. So the, the cult kind of began at my house.
0: <laughs> wow. So you were home base for a while. How long had it been since you first met him until he was in your bed? Three weeks. Three weeks? Oh, my. Okay, that's very fast, all right. So he didn't waste any time,
1: unfortunately.
0: So here you were with people on your porch and your master in your bed. What was that time like for you? It felt magical because
1: I had two roommates I was in the top floor of the house. He would involve everyone around him, and every night there would be people coming to visit in our living room, and there would be drumming and circles and and there I was. At the the center of all this wonderful attention, and now sexual attention, and I thought of him as my boyfriend, he said he was working with me all the time, working with my energies, even when I was asleep, um, we spent a lot of time in bed, not necessarily being sexual, but just lying there. Um, <laughs> it was uh, very life-changing, very, very fast. and I had a therapist at the time and she tried to slow me down a little and they said, I don't need you anymore. I found everything I need in this one person, everything I ever wanted.
0: You know, so happy. Right. I can picture the elation and being the hub of that. And I mean, people love that experience in general when they have the house, that's the fun one to hang out in, right? just that alone. Um, and then so there were so many different levels of, of, yes, what made it special. How old were you at the time? 34. 34. Okay. Had you been in relationships before? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So this one seemed different, in at least initially, in some qualitative ways that you like?
1: Well, it didn't seem like a relationship because he was my, my spiritual teacher, but I... I did think of him as my boyfriend because one night he spent all night in one of my roommate's rooms and um, I was up all night. I was He provoked that the whole time I was with him, this incredible jealousy. And then he came back and he, the next morning he said, I, I'm not someone's boyfriend. I'm a spiritual master. I need to work with everyone in different ways. And of course, one of the ways was sexual with the women it
0: turned out. Wow. Already with the justifications about why he can do whatever he wants to do because it's for Mm -hmm. everyone's benefit. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. And then how was jealousy thought of or treated if you expressed that you were jealous of him spending time with somebody else?
1: It, it would always be that it was something I needed to work with and he would challenge us in all the areas where we had weaknesses so that we could grow. And that was a huge area for me. And he took incredible advantage of that. There was a point where I started to really question what was going on. And I kicked him out. I kicked him and the other disciples out. They were gone for about a week and a half. And I got really sick during that time. 103 degree fever, the flu. You know, I never got that sick. And I was reading a book about Rajneesh, and I was just going through all this stuff. And every night I was processing with my friends that had met him, all the things that he had told us, kind of deprogramming. And then what I'll never completely understand is one day he just appeared in the afternoon. And I was like, it was like being in the, the spider's web, you know, just anesthetized. I was. I was gone. I was back in it, and I was gone. And he could
0: pick up where he left off. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So then, take us through what happened next. So eventually,
1: uh, the landlord kicked us out. Myself and the other two men, we we sold all everything, everything we owned, and gave everything to Master. All our money, and we started traveling. And we started in my uh, in my old Chevy Impala, we would travel out to the beach every night and sleep. And he always had all four of us in the front seat. I mean, there was always this exciting, sexually charged atmosphere. We'd all be very close. And he would drive fast and say he was taking other people's desire to drive fast away and then we would all sleep together on a tarp on the beach. And I would always be in the middle next to him, between him and another one of the other men. The men were young, younger than I was, probably. And it was just very exciting to wake up on the beach. And I loved it. I felt like my utopian dreams were finally coming to fruition because we we were always talking about this great community we were gonna build. And this was just the beginning.
0: Ah, okay. What about all the other disciples that you saw initially? Where did they go? Were they still part of it? Not at that point because we weren't really
1: living anywhere.
0: (laughs) Um, There wasn't anywhere for them to
1: come. But, um, But eventually when we got more settled, people started coming to the different
0: places. Okay. So just pausing there for a moment, he had this way of being very convincing To the point where it sounds like you had a nice setup. You had a place and a house and, you know, it was big enough to have people over. And then suddenly you have no more possessions Mm -hmm. and you've given everything over to him and you're living on the beach. So there's this idea of limerence. It's like an addictive love feeling where it's almost like a trance-like kind of state. It feels like that to me. Is that Mm -hmm. right? yes, definitely i was
1: I was gone. Um, I met with my brother at one point, and at that point, he couldn't have even oh he he brought me his sleeping bag because <laughs> what I had wasn't warm enough. and he described it later. There's no way he could have gotten through to me at that that point. I was completely mesmerized
0: okay so so it was just the four of you for a while, and then. How did it become something that started growing? You're saying you got settled. And then who did the outreach to try to find people, to get more followers? I mean, often that's a group effort, but I'm curious.
1: Well, first, um, we moved on to this man's land for two months. We were just living in our tents. It was a great time. (laughs) And people would come that were actually part of Followers of another guru. They would come at night, we'd have a campfire circle, we'd feed people. And then, for whatever reason, we moved up to Mount Shasta. And in preparation for that, we did this spiritual initiations booklet. And I was the secretary. I did all the typing of it. And we we were in and out of Kinkos. He and I stayed behind because we had to wait for the booklets to be ready. Oh, at that time, another man had come to join us who had met us there and he became like my sometimes boyfriend. And later I was told I was the recruitment tool for him. And so the three of those, the three of the men went up to Mount Shasta first and set up our space in this beautiful, beautiful area. And on that ride up with Master, he started berating me a lot. It was miserable. Just, this had started a little bit before, but just being really, really unpleasant to me and threatening me. And so when we got up to Mount Shasta, I was, I ran to Marty, who was my boyfriend of sorts, and I was so distraught. He didn't want anything to do with me. And so that began the time of being very alone and very left out, and all the things I hated.
0: Wow. So, you know, you think about what kind of personality, well, really, what kind of entitlement you can have if you have someone who's really left everything for you, sold everything, given you the profits, and then you're mean to her. And you know, those two shouldn't go together. It should be that there's an appreciation and a respect and, and, and. What do you think started kind of turning for him? Why do you think he was starting to treat you like this?
1: Well, from what I've learned since about sociopaths and that they look for certain kind of people, I think I was a good victim for him. And he presented, everything he presented was for not only our spiritual growth, but the spiritual growth of the whole world. I'm guessing as he started to see the power he had over us, he kept trying to take a little more, a little more. I was the only, always the person he experimented on first, saw that worked, and then would bring it to the men and then to other people.
0: <laughs> so. Wow. Okay. Okay. So you were the the, the guinea pig. Yes. Right. So then if it's, I I don't know how comfortable or uncomfortable it is for you to recall the things that he said to you that were insulting, that were hard to hear from someone who had shown you so much adoration and affirmation, especially because that's really a pendulum swing and it can feel like a real slap in the face uh, when you're not, I mean, a shock to the system if it starts to happen. What were some of the things that he would say?
1: From the beginning, he tried to work with me on my compulsive giggle, and then I I would crack my my shoulders, part of it also a nervous habit. He would try to do it by kind of shocking shocking me out of it, you know, with this anger, slamming his hand on the on the uh, dashboard, saying, you know, that was an easy one, and you didn't get through it. He talked about the spiritual gates, and that. Only a master could help you through the spiritual gates, and i kept i kept blowing it basically there was all these beings he called them um uh, meaning you know the other world and um they were there to help me, and they would give me all this help, and then I wouldn't make it through the gate and so then he would get angry i mean it wasn't him getting angry according to him, it was part of the process so um That was some of the things. And and like I said, my jealousy and my ego, huge, huge about the ego. It was always about
0: um, my vanity. First of all, having a giggle is very sweet. It shows joyfulness and it's a very personal thing. Everyone's laugh is different. And... When you start chipping away at someone's natural response, you make them so self-aware and so self-critical that they stop having these moments, but especially those moments of joy. It's very, it's very cruel thing to take away someone's laugh or someone's laughter.
1: And at the the two months we were in Mount Chester, it became more and more that it started presenting that law enforcement was always out to get us and. We had to write. People didn't understand. You know, here was a master come to help the world. And so the forces of evil would always be coming against him. And all these, all this um, kind of espionage type stuff. And I hated being around it. I just hated it. I would get into crying. And he would say it was just my woman's stuff getting in the way of the plan. And so, yes, there was no room to be doubting or unhappy, which, of course, is how these things work. Um, And eventually, we ended up, that's when we started fleeing from law enforcement because, you know, they had been having reports about us on the land. We were just kind of squatting there. And so they basically chased us away, and we started back on the road again. And that was a really, really hard time. (laughs)
0: <laughs> There's so much self fulfilling prophecy in that where you know if you do things that are illegal <laughs> then yeah <laughs> law enforcement's going to be after you it's not some espionage or some plot or negative energy or the spirits you just are doing stuff you shouldn't but it sounds like the messages became really grandiose and paranoid yes and in that way it's so it's so interesting it goes back to this sort of it feels like these people have all read the same manual about sort of how to do this. Because it kind of devolves into that kind of thinking so often.
1: I love what Yanya yes, always says about the cookie cutter school, the school.
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah. People will start talking about a particular cult leader or whatever, narcissistic somebody. And then if I say, and, and then did this happen next? They say, oh, I thought you hadn't heard of him. And I thought, well, no, I haven't. <laughs> but sometimes, right, it follows this pattern. But if you haven't been around it, you won't know it. And you won't know what to predict next and know that it's all part of you know, a disordered mind. You know, the part also about cracking your shoulders, I mean, that's a, a tension relief. So he didn't want you to be able to do that either, which is going to build up tension in your body. Oh, it's so interesting. He was making you so uncomfortable.
1: Yes. And um, that happened a lot. I don't know how specific I should get, but that happened a lot with the sexual connection with him. Because when when we were still at my house, he would arouse me all the time, but not let me complete. And so finally I just, took care of myself. Somehow he magically knew that and said, you know, that I had just blown three weeks of work that he was working on because I was so selfish.
0: Oh, that's such a setup. Wow. Cause that would be most people's response to not <laughs> being satisfied in any way. That's just really cruel. So he started to get abusive and then what happened then? And it sounds like the group was growing and you were miserable.
1: Two more men joined us when we were at Manchester because we had gatherings there as well. And so now it was four men and myself. And then, according to him, someone was trying to steal our trailer. So Marty and I were left to guard the trailer. It was hidden. And The rest of the men went up to Oregon to register. We had several cars by then, all the people that had come to join, and they came back to get us, and we started this caravan journey, and we would be doing crazy things like switching drivers, you know, driving high speed down the freeway and switching drivers while we were driving. It was all to take away people's desire for that. And, you know, climbing up on the the load of the the pickup truck to adjust it while we were driving. We ended up in New Mexico at this Indian reservation. It was winter by that time. And we made sort of an igloo in the snow and lived in that for a month. And he would send the, the men into the nearest town every day to try and get pickup work. And I was left there. You know, we hadn't showered for a month. We hadn't done laundry. That was the first time I ran away. I just started hitchhiking to the nearest town through the Indian Reservation. People would give me rides. But I looked rather strange being out there, way out there on an the Indian reservation, white person. This is another thing. Is I honestly don't know how it happened. It's all fuzzy, but I ended up in a mental hospital in this town. But I was the whole time I was talking about him and what was happening. And you know, and then one day, magically, he was in the locked ward with the men. I really don't know how that happened still but I'm sure it wasn't magical and he just I wasn't ready but he just came in and I went with them he started being whenever I would run away he would be sexual with me would say that was a way he had to to work with me to soothe me I, I guess to soothe me and to take away all the demons I had acquired by running away
0: Right. I mean, sometimes when people charm other people and then the other person doesn't end up going with them or doing what they want, it does kind of click into this reciprocity like, okay, well, you know, you've shown an interest in me and maybe, you know, you've taught me some interesting things. I'm not going to give you myself, but I'll give you something else. And it may have been entree into the locked ward. I have no idea, but it would sort of make sense if she felt she had received something from him and wanted to give back. It's sort of human nature, but who knows anyway, but he did have a gift of gab. So I'm not doubting, right? He had a way going back for a moment. So you're in an igloo, you're in an igloo for a month and you haven't showered and you haven't done your laundry. And I don't know if you've been eating all that much, which is going to cause disorientation. Also, if you haven't slept enough, and it doesn't surprise me that you would have been in the kind of shape where someone would have thought you needed psychiatric care because you may have looked like it. You may have just been very thin also and disoriented. And the other part of the story that's really interesting to me as you said that he would send the men to go get day labor jobs. Did he ever work? Not that I know of,
1: but he would go off. The whole time I was with him, he would go off and we never quite knew what he was doing, except later I realized he was recruiting, but um <laughs> trying to recruit. Yes, we were very poor. I remember one time being with the men in this town and we had a dime. We got Dale bread with this dime and we ate it. It was horrible, but that's how starving we were, you know, and we were cold. We didn't have the right clothes.
0: It was miserable. Sounds miserable. Okay. Right. So you wind up in the hospital where you're actually getting fed (laughs) and uh, hopefully being able to sleep a little bit and shower. Were you able to describe what was going on for you? And- I'm curious how that went because sometimes people in these situations do wind up in the hospital or in a psych unit, and it's sometimes hard for them to say what they're going through and to have people understand it.
1: it's all pretty fuzzy
0: still. Yeah. but i
1: I know I talked a lot about especially the sexual stuff that was going on and and the psychological abuse and the dirtiness and the cold and the hunger and but after I came out, he, he berated me over and over. He said, what did you tell them? Did you have your purse there? Were they recording it? How do you know they weren't recording it? What did you say? Are they getting-? You know, it was this, para- this huge paranoia started. I was always the one that was bringing down the evil forces on the group, trying to destroy it, because that's what women did. Women tried to destroy men. And I would go with the devil and try and turn the devil against God. He eventually uh, convinced me that I was the divine mother and I carried all the the energy and the hopes for womankind in my body, that I was sexual with the devil, on and on.
0: Right. The, The misogyny, the sexism is not uncommon. And you don't expect it when someone is this spiritual teacher and seems to be treating everyone or thinking about everyone in the same way. But no, it sounds like he had deep-seated issues, not only clearly deep-seated issues, but deep-seated hatred of women.
1: Well, yes. And what was very interesting was he kept changing all of our names. And at some point he changed my name to Serene. And that was the name of his mother and sister. So that tells you
0: something. Right. Okay. And it could be that he was maybe mistreated by them, or it could be that he mistreated them. I mean, I don't, you know, either way, there's some kind of conflict there.
1: And another time there was a spiritual woman in Manchester that he really wanted to join our group, whose name was Grace, and she wouldn't join. So he brought Grace into my body. And I really believed that it happened. I felt different.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, I'm going to just write that down because I want to come back to that. So this person named Grace. Okay. I think one of the things that's so interesting is you can tell how much someone cares about you or not when, I mean, in a lot of ways, but one of the ways is in a moment like that, that you were in the hospital because of him, you come out and he's berating you and questioning you as opposed to apologizing or at the very least checking in and seeing if you're okay. Those are these pivotal moments. Like the, the people who, well, sometimes you see parents and it's very uncomfortable with kids where the kid is having a hard time and the, as opposed to the parent addressing it, they just say, you know, you're embarrassing me in front of people, be quiet, you know, as opposed to what's wrong. And so he cared about himself in that moment. What did you disclose? How did you betray me? As opposed to how he betrayed you, who trusted him, and where you wound up in the hospital. It's very interesting.
1: Yeah. And then that night that he brought me back to the reservation, he kicked the men out of our tent and had sex with me all night. But that was, um, again, to. There was a lot of reasons, spiritual reasons for
0: it. Spiritual. Right. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Yes. I mean, of course there are going to be a lot of justifications. It's all sort of like a, feels like a reclaiming. Yes, also. exactly. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So um, tell me if you feel comfortable about how he got this presence or convinced you the presence of this other woman was now inside of you.
1: Um. He talked to me differently. The the morning, he supposedly brought her into my body. He said, hello, you dumb cow. You know, and he said, there's that part, that piece on your lip that's always dry. And and I I was stumbling over my words. I said, yes, it is. It is I. I mean, I wasn't talking like myself. That was the theme throughout my time with him. there was probably about 200 different beings in this body because I kept blowing it and he would kill the off. And that was terrifying because it was, according to him, eternal death. And I was responsible for sending all these beings to eternal death.
0: I was always failing the tests. How exhausting. And not only exhausting, but, you know, you start feeling worthy you feel like you're just a bad person.
1: Yes. And this was all before the, the physical abuse started. yet. are still much worse after that, but
0: um, yes. Okay. So we'll, we will move on to that. I think what's interesting too is when he talked to you differently because you had this other entity, as he said, inside of you, and you started to also act differently because mm-hmm. you had this person inside of you as you thought. There is a mimicry that goes on. You want to match this person who you're connected to and have them be happy with you. There's also this diagnosis, this folia de shared psychosis. A shared psychosis is where you're not, you wouldn't be diagnosed as being psychotic, but it's in connection with someone else's psychosis. Mm-hmm. that you enter into it because you're open to it or you want to believe. And a lot of people wonder what happened to them. It's a thing. It's a real thing. And people will join other people's delusions mm-hmm. while they're with them. And then you know it's not who you are if it starts to dissipate once you've disconnected from that person, which is a good thing to track um, so you know if it's your issue or not, really. I come across that a lot where people will start to see they'll start to see a portal because the person says there's a portal there and they'll see it they're sure they see it and so we're we're able to be convinced of a lot of things the things that we want to see so then I'm curious then moving forward again talk about whatever you're comfortable talking about to whatever degree but I'm curious about how things got worse and then what caused you to leave well on the the way back from New Mexico we ended up staying
1: above Tucson for three weeks, uh, again, illegally camping, which is what we did. And again, the men would work, go down and get work every day. And Master and I would play. uh, Literally, we'd play tennis. We'd go to restaurants. So I had this special privilege. And then we went back on the road and we ended up in Santa Cruz. And we were just staying on the, the bluff there and driving off to sleep in our sleeping bags in the park every night. He would sleep in the car, And then eventually he managed, he sent two of us um, to work out this lease deal for this beautiful house up in the hills, which was another pattern that we would scam people. We never paid anything, but we were there for a year. <laughs> so um, when we were in that, that house, one day we were on the steps and he started hitting me and kicking me and gave me this huge black eye. This, I mean, the hitting had been gradual, you know, just hitting me and my, uh, my arm to try and get me to not go on that bad path. It was very gradual. So, I, and then I remember that night after he was in bed, I was sitting with the men and was trying to turn away from them so they wouldn't see the black eye. And then they did. I had a lot of doubts at that point. And if they had said, no, that's not right. He should not be hitting you. I would have left. But they said, well, you have to understand this is part of, you know, it's part of the training. It's part of the learning. Uh, If he did it, there's a good reason for it. And that began almost daily beatings that got worse and worse.
0: To the point where you felt in fear for your life?
1: Oh, yeah. Um, and he would threaten me. He would say, if you don't change now, maybe change in sight, I'm going to put you in the hospital. That was the scariest threat. So I I would run away. <laughs> I ran away and um, the police came and he had me convince them that everything was fine. The neighbor called the police because they heard me screaming all the time. I ran out the backyard, got caught on the barbed wire. The neighbor found me and took me to the battered woman's shelter. And I was there for a night and then they put me in this motel and I just went for a walk the next morning because it was smoky. And there he was. I was just one of those times. There he was on the bluff again. And um, I just went off with him. What I learned at Wellspring was that the adrenaline would come up, you know, from the beatings and the, and I would run away. After I was away from him for a little while, the adrenaline would settle down, and the programming would come back in. And I always told myself, "Well, I just, I just need a little break from the beating.
0: I can't take the intensity. It's insane." <laughs> well, yeah, well, he's insane. So I'm glad. Also, I want to explain to people listening about Wellspring. I'm so glad that you had a chance to go there. Oh, I wish places like that were still around. If anyone is, you know, to that degree where there's a whole treatment center, a residential treatment center where people can go and go for a period of time. I know some people are working on trying to revive some places and, and reestablish them, but yeah, I, I wish that there were places- You know, residential treatment places uh, like Wellspring, and it, it serves such a purpose. Anyone listening who has the place, the want to put something together where people can go and really be physically separate from their cult experience, but also get counseling, get support, get a sense of understanding of what they went through, be wonderful. I would really wish Wellspring were still around. But in any event, yeah, it's an interesting thing when you have been through so much and people will say, "Well, why did you why did you stay or why did you go back?" And so one of the explanations is about the adrenaline and the programming is still there. Were there other reasons that you found yourself going back? Well, I
1: was convinced that I had been prepared for lifetimes for this role to take on all the karma for all womankind. And I was the one that was strong enough to be beaten to release some of that karma. And he would tell me that beating just uh, saved you going through a windshield and being disfigured for life. And um, I think, wow, thank God, you know, (laughs) it was a gift. It was always a gift just like the sexual stuff with a gift. He was a master that was helping me on this difficult path. And all of, all of us with him had been training for lifetimes and had been in lifetimes together before.
0: And we
1: were very, very strong.
0: Okay, right. I, I'm also curious to go back to when you were saying that you were hiding your black eye from the other men and that if they had said, oh no, he shouldn't be doing that, or that's wrong. That would have made an impression on you. That would mm-hmm. have been confirmation, mm-hmm. and they didn't because they were programmed too. I'm curious about that moment because a lot of people will will need what because they are not sure that what's happening to them is wrong. They feel like it is, but sometimes they feel deserving of it. They, you know, they've learned how to justify it by the ways that it's been presented to them and why it's happening to them. But it shows the power of the social psychology in mm-hmm. these moments, right? How powerful and pivotal that moment was, unfortunately, to kind of keep you there.
1: At some point, uh, the woman who'd been my best friend, who I'd introduced to him back when we first met, came and joined us in the house and she she became like the servant because supposedly her energies weren't high enough like mine to cook for us or spend time with us. So she cleaned. And for a long time, I was the only one that got beaten. Um, but eventually, he slowly brought everyone else into it. Um, never to the extent that he did with me because I had to be with him all the time. I was his secretary. So we spent hours and hours together every day working on the computer. Uh, Kate, the other woman, would be out cleaning, and the men would be out getting work.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, he was doing nothing.
1: Well, he was instructing me. I mean, all, of, okay. all of our That's literature, all of our literature was typed by me, but actually written by him, dictated by him. I had always kept journals. And at some point he read them and he extracted from them. And and those were some of the books that we were going to write to draw people into the community. And then at some point he burned my journals, which was devastating for me because I always wondered if I had been able to keep writing, if I might have figured it all out sooner. But again, it was an ego thing. So eventually... When we got kicked out of there, we went back on the road. And that began the time that I was basically imprisoned by him. The man, We left the man and Kate. And I had to be in the car with him all the time. And he would always be driving on back roads and pull off and beat me, rape me, and just kept escalating. And I would run away or come back. And then at one point, he was beating my my leg in my feet with this big rock and he broke my leg. And he knew he knew about my mo of running away. So he he pulled up to the health store. This was back in Manchester. And he left the motor running. He just ran in for and I just ran, I just limped out of the car and there was a van next to our car. I, it was open, and I just got in the back under a blanket, and I could hear him out there looking for me. I was just, I, mean, I was a shaking mess, you can imagine. And the woman came in, and I just said, please, 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 just take me to the hospital. They were so nice. And um, then I went back to the battered women's shelter. It was, I was very traumatized. You can read in my book, you know. <laughs> Very detailed, but um, so eventually um, we ended up back in Mount Shasta and we did one of our scam deals to get this old, it wasn't a trailer, it was kind of an old trailer park and there was no water or electricity. So we were there and things kept escalating. And then we came to a point where we said, He was going to beat me for the next six days, and I won't live through it. So I called that the weekend siege. And at that point, he took all my clothes away, my shoes, everything. So I wouldn't run away. So I was wearing his clothes. And so finally, after three days of that level of beating, he knocked my teeth out one morning, and that was... I don't know why it took that, but that was a wake-up call for me. So that morning, we I had to sleep with him every night, which by that time I hated. So that morning, he was still cleaning all his pants. I went into the bathroom to take a shower, and I locked the door, and I, I crawled out of the window and ran up the street. I mean, it was barefoot and very dirty, and just begged some people to... Um, let me in, which they were very reluctant to, but they finally did and pulled the battered woman's shelter and drove me to meet them. And so that was my last time in the battered woman's shelter. And he kept trying to get me back. He knew where the battered woman's shelter was because I had told him and it's a long story, but um, he basically pursued me for years. He knew where my brother lived. He knew where my mother lived. I have stacks of literature that he sent to me. He had Kate, the other woman infiltrate the battered woman's shelter to try and find out what I had said there. He did that with everything. He at one point, he was running Christ, running for president. We sent faxes to the governor, everyone. Law enforcement was worried about us a lot, but people didn't feel like there was much they could do, you know, how that goes. So anyway, I finally, I finally started talking. That was October 17, 1995. And um I wouldn't let them take pictures of me of all the, you know, the bruises and everything. So I thought, well, I don't look that bad, but they wrote it all down and said so they gave me a computer and I started talking. Once I realized, started to realize that this wasn't God beating me, this was. A psychopath beating me, I was determined to get him, and so I did everything I could, cooperating with law enforcement. I was sent to Wellspring. Law enforcement told me when it was safe to come back to California because they were actively pursuing me. And um, after two years, he turned himself into the the uh, governor's office with a teddy bear. What? he wait first of all he turned himself in he he walked up the steps of the courthouse and said i think there's a warrant out for me there were by that time warrants out for him because he had a lot of other stuff but um he was bringing the gift of a teddy bear to the governor that was part of his thinking and so so they were able to file 13 counts against him based on my testimony but um he wanted to represent himself, and he was declared criminally insane. And so he did end up spending... I did have to face him in the courtroom, which was horrible. Then he was in jail, and he was. He wouldn't drink the water. He was drinking out of the puddles and just only eating candy bars. And so he ended up getting sent to a Tascadero. But he, sooner than he should have gotten out, he convinced... He convinced them that he was sane again, and they released him. And I was terrified. He was supposed to be—he was supposed to be deported back to England after his nine years in prison here because there was an old warrant for him. So eventually, this was all a huge part of my life for years because they kept pursuing me. So eventually, he was deported. Uh, ICE took him and. Once he was in England, I couldn't get any more information about him. I didn't know if he was put in jail. So eventually I realized I had to. I just, I so didn't want it to happen to anyone else. At some point I realized, okay, I've done all I can.
0: got to go on with my life. It's bad enough to go through... What you went through, but then to have someone who is pursuing you, who's stalking you for a period of time, you just can't be done with it. I know that that does happen with a number of people where they feel like they still have to look over their shoulder, uh, and they can't fully relax, and then you can't fully heal because you're still being hyper vigilant, and you have adrenaline, and you're nervous,
1: and then trying to stay in touch with law enforcement and you know, not getting enough information. Supposedly, because I was a victim, they were supposed to share things with me, but then there was Hippolys. I mean, it it just went on. I mean, it was, and I mean, this is one of the, this is one of the things he sent me. He wrote this huge book to try and get me
0: back. My Little Spiritual Path, A Bunny's Journey.
1: That was one of his uh, nicknames for me, that I was a bunny in another life.
0: And it's this huge, so I had to copy this and send it to law enforcement, and it was just constant. But then he got deported. Do you know what's up with him now? I've tried to find out uh, from time to
1: time, and I can't. But they said they they assured me that it would be very hard for him to leave the country. And I did. I, I looked up his name a couple of years ago, and the the judge that was on the case who's retired now, had written some human interest articles about the case. And I was furious because he presented it as a human interest story. Like, isn't this an interesting case? And I I spoke to Yanya and I said, is there anything I can do? She consulted with three lawyers and they said, he didn't use your name, your actual name, so there's nothing you can do. And so, you know, things got stirred up again. (laughs)
0: no, 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 that should remain untouchable and only told by you. And that's why I'm very glad you, you had a chance to do that. You know, I, I wonder also just about others out there. At the time that you were going through all of this, were your family members or any friends concerned or looking or trying, you know, what was happening for them during this time? And did you reconnect with anyone after you got out? Curious about your community. My brother,
1: uh, a couple times I escaped and I went down to his office in San Francisco. I took Greyhound and he took me in. He was terrified at the way I looked, but um, I was completely programmed. And at one point, my sister and her family came from Israel. They were driving through the hills of Santa Cruz trying to find me. And I got a letter from an old boyfriend who somehow was worried about me, and he he burned it. He he burned all the mail. He won't let anyone see the mail. They got so when I came out, I I contacted my brother. He was wonderful. My family was wonderful, and they they paid for me to go to Wellspring, which I'm very which I'm very grateful for.
0: You know, I I think with a with a story as as uh, dark as tragic. As this, that it is a very important thing because I hear it woven into your story, and you say it that this person took you in, this person noticed, this person, you know, gave you a ride, that, you know, that there are these people along the way who um, will. You know, go out on a limb for someone they don't know and, okay. you know, see that there's something wrong and see what they can do. And sometimes those are the ways that you survive. And you also can remain feeling that there's this glimmer of hope about the world outside and people mm-hmm. taking care of you. Those moments are actually really, really powerful, very pivotal. And then having your family really there for you, even with whatever history there was also extremely important. And that's why I often tell family to not go away and to, to not give up hope, but also, especially if people within these groups sometimes are made to be really cruel to their family, or they don't show up for them during important times in their life. It's not because they're making that choice on their own. No, they're programmed. And
1: one more thing I want to say um there's the pastor for the battered woman's shelter who was helped me so much, even though I was, you know, I was Jewish, but um he was the first person that told me the Jesus I know would never hit anyone. And that was a huge revelation to me. He and his wife helped me a lot, and I'm still in
0: touch with his his widow. Very nice. So What would you want people to know about the process of healing? What do you want also family and friends to know about what to do when someone comes out? Like what was helpful for you? What did you need? And what's been helpful for your process of healing, knowing that it's ongoing? At first, when I came out,
1: what I needed, but my brother sent me some books. I, I needed things that were very simple. I had lost my mind, you know. And people don't realize that I I couldn't take too much stimulation. I couldn't read like novels. All of a sudden, what, what I learned at Wellspring is that what saved me was the part of me called the little professor. That was the part that kept doubting all the way through. Thinking just deep down, something's not right about this. And so... Um, I got to do a lot, a lot of therapy at Wellspring, talk to other survivors, and then I ended up living in the town near there, and I would spend a lot of time in the university library and just, I was just learning again about everything. My mind had been emptied. I was just, you know, voracious for knowledge and truth, truth, I, I think for a long time I just needed I needed to be really safe, and I ended up living in kind of a a little tree house where no one knew where I was, and I had a lot of control. I decided when I went out or if I joined the group or if I made a friend, very traumatized for a long time.
0: Very. I'm wondering also, I love this idea of the little professor, you know, that that, (laughs) there is that part of you that's talking to you. And one of the reasons I think that controllers tell you to only listen to them, and if you guide yourself, you're going to make mistakes and don't trust your instincts, is because they know how powerful the little professor is. Right. Otherwise, it wouldn't be such a threat and they wouldn't want to have to take it away. So it says a lot. Sometimes when we look back and we think about the things that that a controller wanted you to get rid of, we know those are the things that were the most powerful. Mm -hmm. Like your own personality, like your giggle. So I'm I'm wondering just about as you talk about the process and how difficult it is, and how some things are going to suddenly trigger you and you realize that there's still more to work on, it seems to me with all that you went through, it would be really important for you to take care of the self, your body, your health, sleep, you know just because your body had been so used and abused and to reclaim your self and I wonder what you did for that
1: actually I was able to get back to dancing and yoga and swimming and eventually got back to synagogue and 12-step, the 12-step groups that I'd been in before. And I have have a lot of support now. And I live in a beautiful, and gardening. Gardening is my salvation. (laughs) That's what I'm going to do after this. (laughs) And, oh, and I walk a lot. I have this beautiful hearing dog. And like this morning, I, I walked out on the marsh.
0: That's That helps me a lot. So listen to your podcast. <laughs> oh, that's very sweet of you. Okay. And so uh, I'm curious, just as we finish up, if there was something else that you wanted to make sure to say, a piece of advice. Just, um, you know, along with the cautionary tale, what to watch out for, or what's been helpful to you that if people are in a similar situation, what they should try to do for themselves, whatever,
1: whatever comes to mind,
0: this is your, your time.
1: One thing I've really tried to communicate for years is anyone can get into a cult at any time in their life. There's a perfect cult for everyone. You don't have to come from some kind of banged up background. There's psychologist cults, the doctor, you know, everything you can think of. And I had been to UC Berkeley at the end of the 70s, trying to be recruited by the Moonies. I thought I knew, I knew about cults. I grew up outside of Berkeley. And it's a love bombing If it feels that good, that
0: fast, and you don't get any time to yourself, get away. I love it. That's really important because so, sometimes people coming out of a situation will want that high again and they'll find themselves in something else because they, yeah, they needed to feel love bond. I mean, we all need that to a certain degree, but it's such a high that we're not thinking that this could be all manufactured and this is not a gift for us. This is so that we lower our defenses with somebody else. It's an interesting thing with love bombing. So, right. So if things are done in a kind of tempered way where it's not this high, it's not a fervor moment, it it just feels nice and calming and you can take your time with it, then, yeah, then it's a lot safer. I
1: mean, it was hard to come out and realize I wasn't this great being. I didn't have this grand destiny. I was just a person who was a victim. Uh, you know, it's like bringing yourself back down to, oh, I'm human. Um, it's quite a process. And I, I will always have scars all over my body, different pain I've been through from the
0: beatings. And is that something you're getting help with? Oh, yeah. Physical therapist
1: said it was delayed trauma from the beatings. I have a lot of pain. Uh, my hands got damaged from all the beatings. Um, and I'm. And grateful to be alive because
0: I know it could but otherwise. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes, on numerous occasions, it sounds like. Okay. But right. There's a part of you that, well, survives. And also that you were you were pushing towards your survival and freedom over and over. Mm -hmm. Uh, which is a very important part of the story too. And I don't want it to get overlooked. The human desire at times that can, in a really wonderful way, overtake you, where you're willing to take the risk in the moment to climb out a window, to hide in a van, to run away. That does say a lot. First of all, it says a lot about the situation that you're in. Also that there is just this need for freedom and preservation. Dr. Paul
1: Martin, you know, who was the director of Wellspring, is no longer with
0: us. He
1: convinced me that running away over and over was a strength. I thought it was a weakness and that I was, you know, one time I abandoned him. I just took us in the car in the night. He had no sleeping bag, anything. And I felt guilty. And he said, no, that was good.
0: Yeah. Right. No, it was very good. And it is true. Even after people have been beaten, even after people have been through the ringer, they will sometimes still feel sorry for the person who is doing this to them, which doesn't say something about that person, I think it says something about you, that you have a conscience and that's your natural proclivity to feel bad if you feel like you've done something wrong. But really at the at the first moment that he started mistreating you is when he abandoned you. And so I don't know if it's possible to abandon someone who's already abandoned you. Well, I, I thank you. I know it's not easy to get into these histories and you can feel it. Like you were saying, you could feel it as you were talking about it. So I give you a lot of credit for ah, kind of going through the fire again, you know, to a certain degree, to be able to to tell the story and how important that is for the for the listeners and how grateful I know everyone will be. Where can they find um, the show that you're on, the book? Where's the book available? The book is available on Amazon, Escapes to the
1: Window, and it's been selling every month for about eight years. And the show is, I, you can just Google it. its It was the Discovery Identification Channel, the series called Dangerous Persuasions,
0: and my episode was in season two. Thank you so much. Um, enjoy your gardening. <laughs> Thank you so much. Glad I got to meet you. Uh, It's it's a pleasure to talk to you. And I'm so glad you survived all of that and put it into words so other people can learn from it. Mm, And hopefully we'll talk again. Thank you. One more thing before you go. Oh my goodness. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. My goodness. I am so sorry that you went through any of that. Let's talk about some of the things, though, that she mentioned that we really learn a lot from. First, I hear a lot that the people who have gotten drawn into other people's personalities have found those other personalities really disarmingly charming and innocent. And she said the fact that he had a gentle voice kind of seemed fragile-looking, and looked humble with something that made her trust him. We always want to be careful about why we ascribe a certain kind of character trait to someone we don't know, and why we assume a certain amount of trustworthiness even though we have no way of backing that up except for a first impression. And so, if you're suddenly feeling comfortable with someone and safe, hold on to that. You might be right, but wait for further confirmation. Find out how they treat you, how they're treating other people in front of you, how they behave more so than the sound of their voice, the content of what they say more than the sincerity of their voice. And at the end of the day, how they walk the walk rather than just talk the talk. How do they treat you? What are they really like? There's something else that we talk about when I work with a lot of people who have been in situations where they really thought that they were somehow failing the organization or they were disappointing their partner. They were somehow doing it wrong. That If they could just get it together, if they could be fine with how they were being treated or actually more accurately how they were being mistreated, then everything would be okay. What makes things very hard when you're in a relationship with a controller is the controller will usually have you keep that relationship very secretive. So you can't call people to check out what's happening because you're not supposed to talk about what's happening. You can't really find a way to confirm it. To confirm that your suspicions might be correct. Confirm that maybe you are being abused or you don't deserve this, whatever this is. And to confirm that the person you're with is not a healthy person to be with and in fact might be downright dangerous to you in a lot of ways. It's also true that when you're involved in a cult, you're not supposed to talk about so much. If people say, just like we hear, uh, it happens time and time again, I'm going to do this thing to you. Don't tell anyone. You want to always, always have your antenna up and wonder why. The reason that you're given is not going to match the actual reason. So, the reason that you are given is usually well, people will try to take this relationship away from you. They don't really understand, or their negativity will get in the way of your spiritual development and blah, 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 blah. But the real reason is they don't want people to know. Because then those people will say, What? What is happening to you? No, 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 no. We need to help you get out of that place or out of that relationship. When I hear Sarah talk also about the fact that when she was getting physically hurt, not only was she taking that on herself and thinking that there was something wrong with her, even though she did run away, but she would come back. It moves us to another piece of the fact that you can't get confirmation and that there is this sort of secrecy. Not only is there a secrecy that happens in these one-on-one kind of cultic manipulative relationships and secrecy at the hands of the cult leader with the general population and other people in your life outside the cult, but there is the need within a cultic group for the leader to control how much the other members will confirm the veracity, the truth of what's happening, how much they're allowed to say, I see that too, or that bothers me also. And she said something so, so, so powerful, which I know you all heard, which is, if the other men in the group had confirmed her black eye was wrong, she would have left. Think about how powerful that is. What is so powerful about that is when you've come to doubt yourself, you need the people around you to be shaking their head in affirmation. You need the people around you to put their arm around you and say, okay, I see it too, and it's wrong. But very often their hands are tied. So if you know someone who is involved in a situation where you see them declining, where you see them looking frazzled, you see them with a black eye, you see them getting very pale and thin, you see them looking behind their back, like they're so anxious suddenly because they've been made to feel scared. Be the voice that confirms that it's wrong. Now that's a tricky place to be because if you come out swinging and say, this is a horrible place and you're being abused, the person will very often feel overwhelmed by that and then feel that they are betraying the group. And so you have to actually do it kind of subtly. And one of the ways is to go up to the person and just to say, instead of, it looks like they're starving you, why don't we get something to eat? It seems like your body really could use something like that. Or if you notice someone has a bruise, if you really feel that they're in danger, then you get the authorities involved. But if they're coming to you with something and you notice that maybe it's an old bruise, you don't know where they got it from, offer them something like, can I get you some ice for that? Or can you tell me a little bit about that? Or I just want you to know that I noticed. And I want you to know that if something's happening, I'm not going to feel in support of that because I care about you. But I am in support of you. So I want you to always feel comfortable talking to me about it and asking me for help when you need it. There are a lot of ways that people need to learn how to talk to people in these situations so they don't scare them away. And I am more than happy to set up times for us to talk about that. And I have some videos about that. And other times people have asked me those kinds of questions. It's a nuanced way of doing it. But one of the ways that you can guide yourself on it is to think, If I were in a situation where I was left feeling very confused about if I deserve to be treated this way or not, or if something bad was going to happen to me, if I shared the behind the scenes secrets, how would I want to be approached where I would feel safe opening up? That's usually your best guide. So think about that. Reflect on that. What would work and what would scare you away? And use that as your own tool to know sometimes how to proceed and how to intercede and how to help talk to you next week thank you very much for listening please support indoctrination on patreon at patreon.com indoctrination be sure to give us a follow on our social media find us on facebook and instagram using at indoctrination podcast and for twitter find us at at underscore indoctrination we love hearing from you too so send us an email at show at com, And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.